WBAI, the station that tells our story and tells it like it is. This is Mabel Williams, widow of Robert F. Williams, Negroes with Guns, and you're listening to WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. And I mean every word of it. And it is 9 p.m. You're tuned to listener-sponsored, non-commercial WBAI in New York City, 99.5 FM streaming at WBAI.org. Earlier this evening, we were supposed to, uh, before the transmitter maintenance ran hours beyond when it was supposed to, we were going to have a primary uh, discussion uh, with... John Tarleton, but he's here with us now, so stay tuned. Stick around. Good evening. This is John Tarleton uh, for the Independent News Hour. Uh, we were scheduled to be on with an election a special edition, a two-hour special edition from 5 to 7 p.m. Uh, but as uh, Max indicated a, a few moments ago, uh, we were derailed uh, along with uh, other shows today uh, by the uh, uh, maintenance problems at Four Times Square. Uh, uh, myself and uh, my co-host, uh, Amiga Gary, and we had... Uh, uh, scheduled a, a jam-packed show with all sorts of uh, uh, savvy pundits, community leaders, candidates, and uh, or, uh, ordinary voters uh, all coming on the air to talk about uh, the issues that mattered and, and who they supported and why. Uh, unfortunately, we were not able to do that show. We uh, missed being able to share that with you. Uh, however, during uh, that uh, downtime, I was able to do it. Uh, uh, extended interview with Tom Robbins, the uh, legendary uh, New York City investigative journalist, a longtime uh, reporter with the Village Voice, who these days, among other things, hosts uh, Deadline NYC on WBAI uh, Monday evenings, uh, 5 to 6 p.m. So we had a fascinating conversation, not only about some of the uh, marquee races uh, going on today uh, in the primary, uh, but uh, some deeper thoughts about the way uh, democracy works or doesn't work in New York City right now. And we're going to go to that in a few minutes. Uh, however, just want to note a couple of things. The uh, polls here in New York City and across New York State just uh, closed a couple of minutes ago at uh, 9 p.m. Uh, election results uh, should start to be posted uh, by the Board of Elections, maybe within the next half hour. Turnout was expected to be uh, low today. Obviously, uh, uh, having a, an election on the fourth Tuesday in August, not a great time for a high voter turnout. But that does mean uh, whoever did turn out today, uh, their votes will uh, be that much more impactful. And there was a lot at stake. Uh, several uh, congressional, wide open congressional races uh, in lower Manhattan, Brooklyn, in mid Manhattan where two longtime incumbents squared off. Also uh, north of the city, where squad member uh, Jamal Bowman is uh, running for uh, election in a hotly contested race. And also uh, state Senate races that uh, 
could shape the tone and the direction of the state legislature in Albany over the next two years. So all this was happening today in what was a second round of uh, party primaries. We already had one round of primaries on June 28th for statewide offices as well as state assembly seats. We had a second round today for uh, all congressional seats and all state Senate seats. This was because of a, a fiasco with uh, redistricting uh, that took place uh, earlier this year uh, where the state legislature uh, was, uh, I guess, found uh, culpable for uh, illegal, illegally redrawing the lines by the state's highest court. And all those uh, redistricting maps were thrown into chaos and redrawn. And, and because of that, we ended up with a split uh, primary with the second primary today. Uh, so uh, it's been uh, a, a chaotic and at times frustrating situation, but we're going to uh, see the uh, outcome uh, by later tonight in a, in a lot of these races. And uh, I had the chance to, as I said, to talk with Tom Robbins about all of this and more. And uh, the interview uh, goes for about 35 minutes. And uh, after it's over, I'll, I'll be back on the air, and hopefully we'll have some early election results to share. And uh, so anyway, let's uh, go to that tape here uh, if we can. And welcome back to uh, the Independent News Hours special election night edition, our uh, truncated version. Uh, our uh, next guest uh, joining us is uh, Tom Robbins, a legendary New York City journalist, former investigative reporter uh, for the Village Voice for many years, and now the host of Deadline NYC on, w- on WBAI, Monday evenings, 5 to 6 p.m. It's always great to have uh, Tom uh, join us on uh, on nights like this, Tom, welcome to WBAI Radio. Hey, John, thanks for having me here. Thanks yeah, for thanks for sticking in. it out. Yeah, right, right, right. No, it's you know, it's BAI, it's part for the course. That's why we have free speech radio. You know, you never know what's going to happen. Exactly. Uh, so uh, uh, today is a big day with the elections, and, and uh, for starters, what what are the races that you're paying uh, the closest attention to? There's two big races in the city, John, that I think everybody who like follows politics closely here in, in New York City is really paying attention to. One is the Battle of the Titans uh, in the new District 12, uh, Congressional District 12, that put two veteran Congress members, uh, Jerry Nadler and uh, Carolyn Maloney, into the same district. So they had to battle it out. And, and there's a fellow named Suraj Patel who's been dogging Maloney for, I guess, the last two elections, maybe three, I forget, and nipping at her heels. And, and poor Serge Patel, now he's got to fight both Jerry Nather and Carolyn Maloney. So and it's, it's got to be a tough road to hoe for him. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. The other race, of course, is the big one, which is an open seat in the new District 10, which encompasses lower Manhattan and a big swath of Brooklyn all the way from northern Brooklyn down to Sunset Park. And and that's a wild one with 10 qualified candidates, only six of whom have been in the recent debates because they qualified for them. But uh, it's anyone's guess what's going on there. They are all liberal Democrats of one stripe or another, but you wouldn't know it to read the flyers and see what's going on about right. it. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about uh, uh, NY10. Uh, uh, Dan Goldman is widely seen as the front runner at this point. He's uh, self-funded himself to the tune of at least $4 million and been on television a lot and in people's mailboxes and his poll numbers have climbed. Uh, what, what do you make of him? He's never held public office. He as the, an heir to the Levi Strauss uh, fortune. Uh, some people see him as a heroic figure from the tr- uh, anti-Trump resistance. Other people say he's a bit of a, a dilettante who's uh, uh, just uh, trying to buy a congressional seat. I think both are true. Both are true, John. I mean, okay. look, I, I, I watched the impeachment hearings, and, and I thought Daniel Goldman, uh, who I also uh, covered a little bit when he was a uh, U.S. assistant U.S. attorney, uh, I think he was a pretty formidable presence uh, in in those hearings, and he did a good job. And I was glad to have him, you know, doing the quizzing and uh, trying to lead the case. Uh, does that give him the right to buy a congressional seat 
in uh, a district as a rookie politician? Well, no, but look, this is a city where Michael Bloomberg uh, bought his first election, you know, self-funded, self-funded a second re-election. That one was pretty much on the merits, but then what on a third term? And he definitely bought that one. So we're kind of used to that in New York at this point, that self-funded, very wealthy candidates uh, hold it against him if you want. Uh, but that seems to be uh, the business we have chosen uh, here in New York. And what do you make of... Uh um, the two more uh, uh, locally rooted uh, uh, figures, uh, Eulene New and, and Carlina Rivera, uh, they've both held office in lower Manhattan uh, for the past five or six years. Uh, one, an assembly person, and uh, of course, Carlina's a city council person. Uh, I, I think a lot of people were a little surprised that they jumped to the, to the front of the polls, but does that say something about uh, the desire of many voters to feel like the candidate is really a part of their communities? I think so. I think that's exactly right, John. I think that, like, look, these are both Yula Nu, who's the assembly member, Carlina Rivera, who's a council member, both of them in Manhattan and with records in their districts, both self-described progressives, you know, uh, a label that is probably going to need some fixing up in a couple of years because, you know, the guy who was in the race briefly but dropped out, Bill de Blasio, he was New York's biggest progressive and he could get no support. So I'm not sure exactly what progressive means these days in politics. But I mean, you know, there's an old joke, which which isn't that funny, but that when uh, reformers form a firing squad, it's a circle. Mm-hmm. You know, they just open fire on each other. And and I think the District 10 race is a pretty good example of this. Each, each one of the half dozen people who qualified for the debates is a viable congressional candidate, any of whom I think would be able to do a fine job, you know, with, with some differences in Congress. Including but, Goldman, who really has no... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I don't think there's... Well, look, I mean, uh, is he is he the first choice as a as a reformer? No, that's, that's not his shtick. Uh, but would he be an effective representative? Look, Chuck Schumer, I watched him from when he was a state assemblyman uh, uh, rise to the level of running for for the Senate. And he's now the leader of the United States Senate. I I think New York City is the better for him. He brings he brings a lot of resources here. He he seems to champion good, strong liberal legislation. So you never know what you're going to get with folks. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. no, I think Daniel Goldman would be a fine congressman if he was elected. Would he be, you know, everyone's first choice? Probably not. But then. When people go to the polls with a multi-candidate ballot like this one, sometimes they vote against people as mm-hmm. much as they vote for someone. So people who are looking at the few polls that they have, and, and they're, they're not – none of them are really strong, but they show Goldman, most of them in the lead, I think aside from the Working Families Party one that showed Yulin New in the lead. Uh, but everybody's sort of nipping at each other's heels. So – if you feel strongly against someone, if you're strongly against Goldman, you're going to vote for one of those two, I think. Or Mondaire Jones, who's also up there, I guess, in the 13 to 17 percent range as well. You know, we should say something else. You know, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> this race also sees two venerable Democrats, both of them women, who are really superb past elected officials. Joanne Simon, who's the assembly member in Brooklyn, and Elizabeth Holtzman, who held a seat in Congress from Brooklyn for many years, and both of them, are they're up there. Elizabeth Holden's a little bit older. Joanne Simon's no spring chicken. She lost her race for borough president. So I'm not sure exactly what she was thinking when she jumped into this race. But both of those, I think, you know, I, if you watch the debates, Liz Holtzman held her own. She was pretty impressive. <laughs> if she was a few years younger, I think she'd get a lot more votes. So we should talk about them a little bit. Right. She would be the oldest uh, person, I mean, she did serve before, but she'd be the oldest person to, I think, start a, a new uh, stint in Congress in American history. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to be an incumbent. I think Chuck Grassley is running in for his Senate seat, and he's going to be, what, 87? I forget, 88, yeah. 90? You know, I mean, people hold on to seats for years. But, you know, the ironic thing with, with Liz Holtzman is that when she won her seat, I think it was in 1972, and I'm old enough to remember, she ran against a guy named Emanuel Seller, 
whose criticism was he was too old and he'd been in the office too long. <laughs> yeah, Emmanuel Sellers started in 1922. She defeated him in 1972. And now we're here in the year 2022 and uh, Liz Holtzman's trying to get back in the game. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I mean, listen, I, I, I sort of someone approached me on the street to sign her petitions. And I said, really? But I said, yeah, put her on the ballot because Liz Holtzman's a formidable figure, too. She really is. And, and the city owes her something. I thought she got a raw deal when she got voted out of offices city controller uh, a few years back, uh, and she obviously still has some oats she'd like to sow in terms of uh, being in politics. So she, if, if you listen to the debates, I think she raised the level of the game. I thought she was pretty good. A lot of people are sort of spouting safe rhetoric, and, and Liz Holtzman sort of spoke her mind. Right. Uh, and, and, and speaking of uh, venerable figures in New York politics, let's uh, turn to New York 12, uh, Nadler versus uh, Maloney. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, your your thoughts on these two 30, 30 year incumbents? Uh, uh, what do you see as the as what distinguishes them from each other, as well as what they have in common? Well, you know, it's funny. It, 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 both of them have really great records in Congress. Ne- neither of them have been just holding down a seat all the years they've been in. They've both been incredibly active. Uh, you know. Gary Nadler, you know, famously chairing the Justice Committee, you can't the Judicial Committee, you can't get any higher level Congress than that. And he's he's always been a brilliant man. I mean, you know, Jerry Jerry Nadler knows the Constitution. Jerry Nadler knows the laws. I always used to learn a lot from him whenever I would call him up to ask about some point. And and Carolyn Maloney has the the heart of a lion. You know, she can be a a little daffy sometimes, but I, I think she's been a great representative. Has she stayed too long? You know, has uh, Patel got a good argument against her? He probably does. Uh, but this is a situation, uh, I think, kind of the Democrats are victims of their own finagling. They created this mess. You know, they, they shot for the moon when, they, when the uh, Independent Redistricting Commission couldn't come up with seats. And then they decided, okay, we'll we'll map it out the way we want, with without a plan as to how to make that happen. And of course, they got shot down in the courts very quickly. So now you ended up, you you, you didn't do it; someone else drew it. And so the worst of all possible worlds, you get two really talented, intelligent, good representatives aiming arrows at each other. And I, either one of them could win at this point. I mean, in terms of their politics, I don't think there's a single important issue that you really can separate. Jerry Nadler from Carolyn Maloney. I, I mean, w- one area that uh, does stand out to me uh, involves uh, at least a couple of their votes in uh, foreign policy. Uh, Nadler seems to have been more dovish in the past. Uh, he voted against the Iraq War, and Maloney voted for it. I, I don't mm-hmm. know if there's a statute of limitations on, uh, uh, you know, the price uh, uh, politicians should pay for uh, helping start that war, but. Um, there is there, there is no statute of limitations, John. Okay, well point. then You're maybe maybe right. the bill is going to come due for uh, Carolyn Maloney today. It could, it could if, if people you know if people are you know paying attention to that. I mean, I uh, and, and also uh, uh, Nadler uh, supported uh, the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, and Maloney opposed it, and, and I, that seemed to take some uh, uh, gumption for Nadler to do that, given that a lot of his constituents on the Upper West Side are, are very pro-Israel. That's certainly true. That's certainly true. Um, does that mean that Jerry Nadler always goes an independent way, out independent of that constituency or others within his district? I think we could probably sit down and go through a list and come up with a bunch of things that he really sort of caved in on. But, mm. but yeah, no, that's that's not an unimportant one. Uh, Nadler, uh, Nadler, I think had an had a thorough understanding of what the implications, the long-term implications are for both those votes, both the Iraq war and one that, you know, why did why did Maloney not vote that way? I don't remember. I didn't have a conversation with her about it at the time. She certainly couldn't have been too strong an advocate for the war because I don't remember her being one of the people who was, you know, rooting. I mean, Hillary Clinton, you know, who infamously you know, supported that war uh, while she was in the Senate. Mm-hmm. You know, that that sticks. That's something that sticks. The, the votes in the House of Representatives, I think, were much less meaningful in the, in the same way. But, you know, people needed to take a position. And, and if Nadler took the right one and Maloney took the wrong one, that's something to recall.
Yeah. Uh, and uh, also, are, are, are you following, uh, oh, I guess, um, yeah, uh, are you following the, any of the state Senate races? Uh, the one that's drawn my most attention has been uh-huh. the drubbing that Gustavo Rivera, who I think has been a, a great state senator in the Bronx, is taking. I don't know that he can survive this race because he's just taken a hammering because all of the PACs from business and real estate have teamed up together with uh, the local politicians who oppose him. Uh, and uh, I'm, he's, he's in a district which which now has, I think, a good portion of his old district after redistricting, but he's still he's still in a fight for his political life right now. And that's a shame because I, I met Gustavo Rivera when he was first running for office against the old Bronx machine. And, and he was a he was a profile in courage. And I think he's been a great member of this new state Senate that we have up there. So that's the one I was paying attention to, you know, uh, there are probably some others. I mean, uh, but I, you know, the one in I live in downtown Brooklyn. Uh, we got uh, Andrew Gennardis, uh mm-hmm. versus uh, David Yasky, uh, and you know, uh, David Yasky is probably a guy who had his moment. He was the city council member. He later mm-hmm. got a kind of a patronage job from the uh, city hall when he ran the taxi limousine commission. Uh, he was always a talented guy, but he's never seemed to quite live up to the buildings. Uh, Gunarda seems to be a young, energetic guy who's, you know, trying to to make a change. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yes, he's a better known name probably in the, in the wider district that he's in now. Mm. And speaking of uh, uh, younger figures, uh, can you talk a little bit about the uh, the divide in Democratic Party politics between uh, older voters who tend uh, to vote for more conservative or moderate candidates, if that's the word, and and, and uh, the younger voters who tend to trend left? I mean, uh, so far, the older voters seem to uh, get their way most of the time. Um, mm. I- I- any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, you're talking to a guy in his mid seventies, John, and I still consider myself something of a radical. Not really not as radical as I was back in the day, but I look. I I don't think I don't think that uh, the trend towards people staying in office beyond their you know their due time is has been a good one, you know, and I think that older voters definitely tend to trend more conservative as they get older. And, and some of that's not for a bad reason. You know, they sort of they understand the implications sometimes of policies. They've thought about it. They've been through things. Uh, but if there's a it, there's obviously a strong wave of, of impatience and dissatisfaction that's welling up in all kinds of ways within the Democratic Party. And that's all for the good. That's all for the good. Is it all wise? I mean, is every single person that's been dubbed a progressive or necessarily a great politician and a, and a great candidate for office? Uh, not not to the way I see it. But I but I do think that the Democratic Party has got to realize a way to accommodate that and to try to move some of its older figures towards stage left and just, you know, get, you know, open the door to bring more people in. Like I said, you know, this fellow Patel, I don't know that much about him, but. You know, I mean, in, in that district, we're running against Carolyn Maloney. He certainly deserved a shot. He's not going to get it now. And I think there's a mm-hmm. bunch of other people who have been trying to do similar challenges. You know? Right. And, and there's been a lot of talk about the influx of uh, big money into some of these races, independent expenditure committees uh, dropping hundreds of thousands of dollars, often on uh, negative attack mailers. Uh, against uh, candidates, especially uh, the more left-wing candidates, uh, accusing them of socialism or um, uh, being police defunders or whatever uh, you know it, it might be. But uh, uh, I, when I look back over the last couple of cycles, in, in 2018, we had the election uh, of AOC and all those uh, uh, left-wing state senators who shook things up in Albany, and then 2020. Uh, after the in the kind of the wake of the George Floyd protests, we had an, uh, another surge of, uh, of of young, mostly young left wing insurgents who knocked off longtime incumbents, uh, Jabari Brisport, uh, Afaris Afrant Forrest, and some others, and then of course Jamal Bowman won up in uh, the Bronx and Westchester County over a thirty two year incumbent. But it it, it seems like uh, the 
Alessandra Biaggi knocked off it, probably the worst guy in the state Senate. Right. In 2018, right. In, that, yeah. in that wave. And Fine. it seems like in the last uh, year or two, uh, uh, things have sort of shifted in another direction. Uh, uh, the more uh, conservative candidates are uh, are winning the Democratic primaries more often. And it also seems like uh, a big real estate in particular has really uh, decided to uh, amp up its uh, uh, support for uh, corporate friendly Democrats and, and, and just sort of swamp some of these races with their money. Uh, I, well, we, we, we live. That? Well, we look, we live in an era in which the Supreme Court has ruled that these kind of anonymous, independent, so-called political action committees that can spend billions, literally. We've got a guy today who's giving $1.6 billion to the conservative causes that they rule the day. I mean, I'll say one thing about your comment about, you know, when, when, when uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was winning. Believe me, if those folks who were filling the coffers and filling your mailboxes with attack kids. Now, if they had seen AOC coming, boy, they would have told it. They would have told it. That. Nobody saw it coming, including Joe Crowley. Nobody saw it coming. It was a magnificent race, and, and she took it from him. He wasn't looking. So I'm, I'm not quite sure that it compares on, on that level, at least to that particular race. But this is this I mean, it is seems the like way- they're kind of snuffing out the potential for – future AOCs and future Alessandra Biagis and others like that to emerge because the, the gauntlet is so much more. They're doing their best. They're doing their best. And if you can figure out a way to shut down that, that spigot of, of cash that goes in, God bless you. But this this really is the shape of politics on both a local and a national level. I mean, it, uh, when uh, Eric Adams ran for mayor, his, his biggest money, billions, came from some of the most right-wing Republicans, you know, uh, cryptocurrency guys, charter school people. Mm-hmm. They pumped millions into a independent pack that, like, nobody even saw coming. Nobody even talked about it. It was so much money. But that's where most of the money in Eric Adams' campaign came from. Right. So that's the world we live in. You know, it ain't a good one. And uh, But that's a Supreme Court decision that we're living with and we're seeing. And the only – sometimes – Democrats have done a much better job at, gra- at grassroots fundraising and to be able to beat that money. And that seems to be the only thing we can do. Certainly in Obama's two national campaigns, they did that. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think that's the only thing I can think of that can really counter it because it's always going to be there. This, these, these races can't matter to these folks. They matter in a big way because they – they, they earn their living that way. You know, you're talking about taking away, you know, their livelihood in some ways or even shaving the points off it. And, and they're, you know, they're going to fight back. So you're talking about the establishment. I'm talking about the folks who are piling big money into mm. these races that you're talking about. Yeah, they've yeah. got they've got something involved in it more than just they have strong beliefs. It's, you know, you know, it's their do re me matters. So. The only the only the only remedy is for people to run strong grassroots campaigns that like beat them at the door. You know, that you knock on the doors, that you make the calls, get off of the text machines. I must have gotten a zillion texts from every single candidate in CD10 where I am. You know, I, I mean, I don't think that's a winning game. I really don't. I think person to person is the best single way to win a campaign. And there's people out there who do that. They're knocking on doors in Pennsylvania right now, getting ready for some of those races down there. That's that's the way to go. Right. Uh, and, and just when we talk about them, the people giving money, like one, one individual who's been especially a large donor here in New York is uh, Stephen Ross. Uh, <laughs> can okay. you tell us yeah. a little bit about who Mr. Ross is and what his interests are that he's fighting for? Mega real estate. Mega. You know, he's, he's I don't know what his exact title is, but related uh uh, housing development, I forget the formal name. This is the man who built Hudson Yards. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the guy who has built huge numbers of both new commercial and residential projects around New York and also 
Let's see. Then he, well, he used to own a ball club, I think, as well. Miami Dolphins football. Thank team. you. The Dolphins. Yeah, right. That's it. That's it. And and I, you know, the guy's got money to play with. I, doesn't he own Equinox? Isn't he? Yeah. He yes. Comes to e- yeah. So tell your listeners about that. By the way, you know, Stephen Ross owns Equinox. Well, in case you're going over there. We don't there want to do any uh, free commercials for his uh, businesses. Yeah, well, oh, well, I wasn't doing it as a commercial, John. I was letting people know that like, they might, stay not away. Wanna, <laughs> might not want to be there. But, I, but look, I mean, he. He's a guy who's brilliantly keeps a fairly low profile, given his huge economic profile and development profile in the city. He's a good buddy of Donald Trump's. I mean, I, I, he has been he has been aligned with Trump for years. He doesn't talk about it, mm-hmm. you know, but you can look at the donations. Uh, he is smart enough not to voice the crazy lies and talk about a fraudulent, but. But that is the world that he comes from. And so he's got, you know, he, and he's got a big vested interest in this town. When, when, when Michael Bloomberg was mayor, uh, Donald Ross, was, I mean, I mean, Steve Ross was, was virtually, you know, a kind of co-mayor because his guy, Dan Doctoroff, was the deputy mayor for development. And he had worked for Steve mm. Ross. That, that was his guy. You know, so like I think he feels a little out of it the last few years. He'd like to get back in there. Right. And people that are being right? elected, I mean, we're, we've been talking about you know, kind of the, 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 the horse race here a little bit. But uh, with these representatives, I mean, once people are in office, like, how, how do you judge uh, whether an elected official is, is effective and doing a, a, a good job because there's obviously a lot of different ways they can potentially make an impact, whether it's with the legislation they write or, or pass, but also as public figures that can galvanize public opinion, as people that can bring resources back to their communities. Um, how, how should the public uh, assess the performance of their elected officials, their legislators in particular? Well, I, I, we, we need to judge them by what they do and by what they do not do. We certainly have plenty of elected officials who uh, either go to Washington or or go to Albany and sit on their duffs and basically pad their nest and and don't really go after issues. But you can can tell the ones who really – get in there and scramble. Gustavo Rivera, the guy I was talking about before, he was he was a neophyte. He was a rookie boy and he jumped in, you know, and he when he was there the Republicans still had the new control of the state Senate, but he mm-hmm. was part of the group that took over. That, you know, democratic control of the state Senate was was a was really not much short of a revolution because of the kind of things that they were able to accomplish once they got in. And that that made a huge difference. You know, on on a national level I, I think it's a little a little more difficult to assess what people are doing. And probably the most important thing is to make sure that you're staying in touch with people in your home district. Joe Crowley, <laughs> one of the reasons that 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 uh, Ocasio-Cortez was able to defeat him was because he literally had not been seen around the district, particularly in the Bronx piece of it where she came from. You know, he was just living in D.C., living a good life. He was like the number two. He was up to be the next speaker. He thought he, he was going to succeed. He had his three children enrolled in the, uh, the uh, schools in yeah, Virginia. Yeah, in the yeah. well, I mean, you know, because he'd been there so long. He said, what am I doing? I'm going to have my family here so I can see my family. I don't want to be traipsing up to New York all the time. Yeah. So, you know, that that is one of the ways in which in which you judge people. Do you see them? Are they around? Are they here for you? I mean, people have so many everyday needs that – a Congress member, a state senator, uh, even a state assembly person can be crucial to you. Just that you can go to their office and get a response. You got to have, you got to have a good staff, a great chief of staff. You got to make sure that you pay attention to the little things. I think that's the- so. Who are some current uh, legislators that, or, or recent legislators that uh, uh, stand out to you in the city that, that sort of model what you would like to see from a. I think there's I think there's a lot of them, you know, okay. I mean, Liz, Liz Kruger from the from the Upper East Side. And I think Liz Kruger is kind of the role model of the kind of, you know, uh, both brilliant uh, reformer uh, mm-hmm. and a policy shaper. But also, uh, I don't even live in her district, but I get her stuff all the time as to what she's constantly holding meetings for senior citizens, meetings about covid, trying to get information out to people. I mean, I think. 
I, I think someone could do well to take a look at how Liz Kruger runs her office if they want to know how to be able to really serve their constituency and, and, and stay in people's good graces, or at least let people know that you're around and you're doing things. You know, the outgoing guy, Dick Gottfried, from mm-hmm. uh, the Chelsea uh, Clinton area, you know, he's, he's now retiring. But what a, what a hero Dick Gottfried was. You know, he was there for, I guess, I don't know, close to 50 years. And, and he plugging away on health issues and getting things done at the margins all the time, but never uh-huh. giving up, getting stuff done. And everybody in his district knew Dick Gottfried and knew to be able to go to him and get something from him. Uh, my old friend Jim Brennan from Brooklyn, I think he was much the same way. He's out of the assembly now, but I know that he was, you know, constantly available to people and always looking for ways, you know, he was a genius at trying to curb the power of public authorities. You know, it was one of the things he focused on as an assembly mm-hmm. member, and he teamed up with other people who wanted to do the same thing. Uh, you know, despite all the insults we hurled towards the uh, Albany legislature, I think, we, you know, we've, been, we've had some pretty good representatives up there. They haven't always been in power. But they, but they are role models for the kind of stuff you can get done. Uh, is it the same in in, in Congress? You know, uh, you know. I mean, I Nidia Velasquez, I think, has been has been a pretty consistent, uh, diligent representative. You know, she is, and and I think that she's she's represented both her broader constituency as well as Latinos in a in a tremendous way. She's been a voice for them. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of this. There's, there's no shortage of folks that we could look at to see who are doing a good job. And, and that's what we would ask of all these folks, you know, like the, the crowd that's running in, in the 10th district, you know, is that they look at some of these people to see if they get in there. This is what they need to do. Right. And what's the value uh, on the kind of the other end of things of uh, representatives uh uh, you know, taking uh, uh, sort of a more ideological approach uh, to at least some of their work in uh, uh, advancing and trying to popularize ideas uh, that might be on, on the margins of current uh, discussion, but you know, through sort of dint of effort over time and uh, uh, can make an impact uh, that way. Well, I think we've, we've seen some of that. I think, uh, oh, Ocasio-Cortez has certainly shown what you can do when you grab onto an idea and try to promote it. She's been a, a just a clarion voice on issues like the Green New Deal and uh, ending, you know, uh, student debt and, and other issues. You know, I think, I think she's she's shown people what can be done. Oh, uh, I, I think the danger is that that's all you do, that you only focus on on the broader issues uh you know all these bodies you know are are really you know based on how long you've been around and who's going to be able to give you access to power in washington so uh you've got to be able to figure out a way to hold on to your seat long enough to be able to get in there and and get and get the power and get the influence that you can actually make things happen. You know, I think if she sticks around and stays to her game, she is. We're going to see the influence of her policies that she's advancing. And I guess these uh, elected figures, especially if if they're on on the younger end of things, it seems like they often hit a fork in the road where they do have to decide, am I going to burrow in to this institution and try to, you know, slowly build up my influence over time? Or do I, use my current position to try to springboard onto something uh, uh, higher profile with more power. Um, uh, I, I guess you've seen uh, plenty of uh, both approaches. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I, I think that it always turns your head once you're in elective office. If you're doing a good job, if people seem to be applauding you, you you start, you know, either you or your political advisors start saying, oh, what's next? What else could we do? Let's run for something. You know, most infamously, we see it with mayors of New York, all of whom <laughs> somehow dream of being president. It's just astonishing. You know, almost almost all of them, you know, they just, Bill de Blasio was in, believed he could be president of the United States. It's insane. But I, I mean, Adams, I, guess Eric uh, Adams I mean, within a week of winning the, the Democratic <laughs> primary last year, Eric Adams was calling himself the <laughs> national face of the Democratic Party. Yes. Anointed by God. Yes. I, I mean, it is a sickness. It is a sickness, John. And I don't know. I don't know how you guard against it. 
you know, uh, Fiorella LaGuardia, to my knowledge, never talked about running for president. You know, he certainly was an ambitious guy. He wanted to get things done. But I think he understood that, like, his best bet was to be able to, you know, do the best job that he could. But I look, I, I mentioned Chuck Schumer, you know, before and, and I forget how many years he'd been in Congress before he ran against Al D'Amato. And and he did one of the great favors to New York State by beating D'Amato, who had, who had been a three term senator and was just a vile, a vile politician in almost every level, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of his policies. And, and Chuck Schumer said, I'm going to run for Senate and I'm going to take him out. You know, uh, Liz Holtzman tried. She couldn't do it. Uh, Bob Abrams tried. He couldn't do it. And Chuck Schumer pulled it off. So, you know, hats off to you when you sort of notice this is your moment. And this is the, and this is more importantly, this is the person you want to run against, you know, and this is what you would do. I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of Chuck Schumer's politics, but I am. I've always been impressed by his relentless efforts to try to make policy. The fact that he was able to put this bill together, this uh, bill that Biden just signed after so many false starts, you know, that ain't Uh nothing. That ain't nothing. You know, yeah, himself. being stuck in the same room with Joe Manchin month after month, that's a You know, there's there's some important stuff in there for climate change, for 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 medical, you know, for prescriptions. It's just it's a, it's a real step forward, even though you sort of get lost in the shuffle. So so that's Chuck Schumer, you know, and that's that's something we should be happy that he's from our he's from our city and that he got that done. Right. And uh, before we go here, uh, any any uh, thoughts or predictions on uh, what uh, uh, trends or issues or directions uh, we'll see emerge in uh, New York City uh, or state politics in the coming year? Well, I, I, you know, one trend we could talk about right now is that nobody goes to vote anymore. You know, I mean, <laughs> well, we're sitting we here schedule elections on August 23rd. Indeed, indeed. So why are we here? You know, I think we're here because of that. Because same some greediness. judge in Steuben County said so. Or, or yes, or because Democrats couldn't think around the curve to be able to figure out how do we get this done. I mean, I, I was not a fan of doing it in June. They wanted to do them all in June. Instead, they just did the statewide and they bumped the uh, local races uh, down to August. But goodness, grief, good grief, you know, like the, the third week in, in August when, when, you know, half the city who could afford to do it is away someplace. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, I, I don't know what the final numbers are going to be. We were, what, I think 180 some odd thousand had voted by around mid-afternoon. I think Bridget Bergen on WNYC was reporting that, you know, there's about uh, 15 to 20,000 absentee ballots that they've accepted. So, but it's still, it's just, you know, we're going to be there at around 12 percent, 13, you know, 14 percent. Uh, it's just, you know, I mean, that's basically what we had in June, too. So, you know, that's that's a trend. People don't vote anymore. They don't see the need to vote. They don't, as much as we spend time talking about this stuff, there's a lot of folks who don't see themselves with a vested interest in the outcome of these races. Um, and the only way to do that is to make it make clear that, like, politics affects people's lives. And I think that's the same kind of grassroots approach I was talking about before. Right. Well, I think we'll we'll leave it there. But uh, Tom Robbins, uh, legendary uh, a journalist here in New York, host of Deadline NYC uh, on WBAI Monday evenings, five to six p.m. Thank you so much for joining us on uh, uh, tonight on the Independent News Hour, our election night edition. John is a guest. Thanks for letting me give. I hope I didn't say anything that offended you or anybody else. But I was not at all. Always it. enlightening. Okay. <laughs> Take care. All right. You have a good night. And that interview recorded just a few hours ago. And John Tarleton is back with us with hopefully some uh, early results from the primary elections. So, uh, I'm here, Max. Take it away, John. Okay, so we're uh, uh, getting uh, returns coming in uh, quickly. Uh, maybe not so many votes to count uh, this time because of the August uh, primary. Uh, and uh, our uh, marquee uh, congressional race in the New York's newly created 10th, uh, 10th congressional district, um, uh, uh, we have a, a, a tight two-way race between uh, millionaire former federal prosecutor uh, uh, Danny Goldman and uh, uh, Chinatown Assemblywoman Yuling Nu, uh, with over 
75% of the vote counted. Uh, last time I looked a few minutes ago, uh, Goldman was up by about two and a half points. Uh, Yulene New has been uh, gaining ground on him uh, uh, for a while now. Uh, Goldman was out to a, a larger lead initially. Uh, two other, the two other main candidates in the race, uh, Congressman Mondaire Jones, who moved uh, to New York from his uh, um, Westchester County District to run in this race, is at about 18 percent, and Lower East Side City Councilwoman uh, Carlina Rivera at about 17 percent. Uh, the nightmare scenario for progressives was that these three candidates would divide the progressive vote in what is a overwhelmingly uh, liberal progressive uh, district and allow Goldman uh, to slip through. Uh, Goldman, a much more conservative track record, much more pro-law enforcement, a very uh, hostile to Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, a student debt abolition. Uh, he himself is the heir to the Levi Strauss uh, fortune uh, with an estimated net worth of 64 to $253 million. Uh, so obviously he never had to worry about student loan debt or how to pay for his doctor bills or anything like that. And uh, he wants to be a congressman, and he's uh, self-funded himself to the tune of $4 million and inundated the district with television ads, mailers, et cetera. And uh, he is currently uh, holding a narrow lead. Ewing New has been closing that gap uh, with roughly 75% of the vote counted. Uh, Goldman was at about 20, is at about 26%, and Yuli knew just over 23%. Uh, with these kind of races, uh, the thing you have to kind of watch for is where the votes are coming from and where the remaining votes are to be found. Uh, Yuli knew's uh, strongest areas in this district would be uh, Chinatown in lower Manhattan, as well as the Sunset Park Chinatown uh, that's a part of this district. Uh, and so we'll see uh, how that race uh, progresses. But uh, looking uh, very good for Yulene New, definitely within a striking range. Uh, she's been one of the most uh, fiery progressive voices in Albany in recent years. Uh, she took over the assembly seat that was held for 40 years uh, by former uh, assembly speaker Sheldon Silver after he uh, resigned in disgrace uh, in a, corrupt, a federal corruption scandal, and she took uh, that seat in a very different uh, direction from the backroom uh, corruption and deal-making of Sheldon Silver to being a very outspoken progressive and was someone in Albany who uh, jousted with Andrew Cuomo uh, long before his uh, uh, sexual harassment scandal uh, sank his career. Uh, she was very outspoken at the beginning of the pandemic about budget cuts, that would affect the most vulnerable New Yorkers. Uh, she's been a very visible presence in her district uh, for the last six years. And uh, if she were to pull this out, this would be a big a victory for the left. She was in, she's been endorsed by the Working Families Party, Jamani Williams, uh, Brad Lander, Cynthia Nixon, uh, and, uh, and uh, several uh, incumbent uh, Democratic socialists in the state legislature. So we will continue to follow that race. And in general, coming into tonight, it, uh, there was a lot of concerns that uh, the progressives and socialists uh, might struggle. We're going to have very low turnout today, and often in low turnout races, uh, it's the uh, older voters who are the most consistent voters who show up uh, no matter what. And in Democratic primaries, uh, these people, uh, these voters, do tend to skew in a more conservative direction, but... Uh, this race uh, is, is looking promising, but it's far from uh, determined. Also, uh, in, in the New York's 12th Congressional District, uh, Jerry Nadler, in a battle of uh, titans of two 30-year incumbents, uh, he is uh, leading Carolyn Maloney by over 30 points and, and seems uh, headed to an easy victory. Uh, Maloney started the race ahead in the polls, but uh, stumbled during the campaign and uh, – uh, Nadler really hasn't had to uh, compete in a primary in decades. Uh, really pulled ahead and is up by about 56 uh, to 25 right now. Again, in most of these races, we have 70 to 80 percent of the precincts uh, reporting. So Nadler will continue his career in Congress as the uh, 
the ranking Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee. If the Democrats somehow hold their majority in the House this year, he'll continue to chair that committee. And uh, Carolyn Maloney seems uh, headed into retirement after a 30-year career uh, representing uh, the east side of Manhattan. And uh, uh, while they share a lot in common, as I discussed with Tom Robbins in that earlier interview, uh, definitely in foreign policy, some differences. Uh, Nadler uh, voted against the Iraq war. Carolyn Maloney voted for it. And also uh, Nadler voted for the Iran uh, nuclear deal in 2015, and Maloney opposed it. And uh, Nadler did that, even though there are plenty of uh, pro-Israel supporters uh, in his district on the Upper West Side uh, that saw that as threatening to Israel. So uh, Nadler will continue in Congress for the next uh, two years. Also, in state Senate races, uh, not uh, quite as prominent, but crucial seats that will help determine the tone and direction of uh, state government in Albany over the next two years. Uh, very exciting news for Democratic Socialists. Uh, their candidate, uh, Kristen Gonzalez, in the newly formed 59th uh, State Senate District, which encompasses uh, Astoria, Long Island City, Greenpoint, uh, Williamsburg, and a chunk of the east side of Manhattan in the 20s and 30s. Uh, she's uh, handily leading uh, her main opponent, Elizabeth Crowley, uh, by over 20 points. And, uh, again, with more than 70% of uh, votes reported, so seems almost certain that Kristen Gonzalez will become the youngest woman ever elected uh, to the New York State Senate, uh, taking that record from her uh, fellow socialist, uh, Julia Salazar, who was elected at the age of 28 in, tw in the year 2018. Uh, Kristen Gonzalez would be the third uh, state senator that uh, the Democratic Socialist of Socialists of America have elected uh, to New York's uh, state Senate. Uh, they also uh, have uh, five assembly members, including uh, Sarah, um, Sarah Hanna-Shrestha, who uh, won an upset victory in the Hudson Valley in the first round of primaries in June, uh, Shrestha defeated a uh, 24-year incumbent who was very close with the health insurance industry and other uh, big money interests. So it uh, looks like this year we're going to see the uh, socialist block in Albany uh, grow from six legislators uh, to eight. And that is in spite of a absolute barrage of money and uh negative attack ads, ne negative attack mailers uh, directed at their candidates. Yuli New has also faced the same sort of barrage of, of attacks, a lot of that funded by big real estate interests and other uh, big money interests that are alarmed by the growth of uh, socialists in office and really any progressive or uh, left-wing office holders that uh, have any notion of wanting to redistribute uh, wealth in the society uh, for the uh, benefit of the common good. And uh, so on a night where it looks like the left uh, might struggle, uh, uh, Kristen Gonzalez wins a overwhelming victory in, in her race and also two races we've been following in upper Manhattan in the West Bronx are also going well for progressive forces. Uh, uh, two pr uh, progressive state senators, uh, Robert Jackson in District 31 and Gustavo Rivera in District 33 were seen as being very vulnerable after redistricting when their district lines were redrawn in a way that, that uh, deprived them of many of their uh, previous uh, supporters and forced them to uh, have to introduce themselves to a whole new uh, 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 group of constituents, and they both faced well-financed uh, opponents uh, uh, that were heavily backed by the charter school industry and also had the blessing of uh, Upper Manhattan uh, kingmaker, Congressman uh, Adriano Espillat, uh, his uh, Dominican power uh, block up in Washington Heights and West Bronx, uh, saw, saw him expand uh, the number of seats uh, he controlled in city council last year, and it seemed like uh, he was well poised uh, to 
have his uh, protégés uh, take over these seats where he um, and his uh, supporters did very well last year. Uh, but right now, uh, Gustavo Rivera is uh, winning handily uh, in his race, and uh, Robert Jackson is leading by about five points uh, in his race. So that could still go either way, depending on where the remaining uh, 20% or so of votes uh, will come from. But you certainly want to be five points ahead and five points behind with about 20% of the vote uh, left to come in. Also, uh, a second race, and, and, and uh, with uh, Jackson and Gustavo Rivera winning, that's a blow for the charter school industry, uh, which uh, these kind of campaigns uh, receive uh, lavish support uh, from some of the wealthiest uh, people in New York State, uh, Wall, State Wall Street interests and other uh, billionaires that see the public schools and the funding they receive essentially as a revenue stream that they want to uh, divert into their privately managed uh, charter schools. And uh, uh, in whatever the rhetoric they put out about uh, offering a better choice and all of that, their financial motives uh, have been uh, clear for years, and they uh, have been hoping to uh, have a more friendly legislature in Albany that would increase the current cap on how many charter schools uh, can be uh, operating here in New York City. So if they had been able to win those two races, that would have helped their cause. Uh, Robert Jackson, uh, really a legend in, in the, corner, the signature of his uh, career as a community activist in Washington Heights and later as a city council member and uh, state legislator, has been uh, his fight uh, for uh, equitable funding uh, for all public schools in New York City and, and New York State and to ensure that equitable funding is provided to public schools that serve predominantly black and brown communities and, uh, you know, strongly backed by the teachers union. So he had a big target on his back and the charter school industry came for him and allied itself uh, with uh, Adriano Espillat and his political machine. Uh, but right now it looks like uh, Robert Jackson is going to hold on, uh, or at least he has, he has the edge uh, with about 20% or so of the vote still to come in, and Gustavo Rivera uh, winning handily uh, another term in office. Um, he was one of a handful of state senators that got a uh, endorsement from uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He received that about a week and a half ago. Um, one other state Senate race we've been uh, following closely uh, out in uh, Senate District 21 in uh Flatbush, East Flatbush, and, and, and that corner of Brooklyn, uh, 19 year incumbent, uh, Kevin Parker being challenged by, uh, uh, also by the, uh, Democratic Socialists with their candidate, David Alexis. Uh, there's also a third candidate in the race. And right now, Parker is, is winning uh, by about 59 to 34%, uh, over David Alexis. And there's a, and the third candidate has about 17% of the vote. So it looks like Parker is going to hold on and and prevail in that race. Um, however, uh, his winning total will probably be under 50%, and that's always a warning flag for an incumbent, and will probably make him a uh, target for more challenges in two years. Uh, Parker is the chair of the Senate Energy and Tele Telecommunications Company and is, is someone that the DSA – really wanted to take out. He's been a big obstacle uh, to public power and, uh, uh, you know, Green New Deal initiatives in New York. He's been uh, generously backed by fossil fuel interests as well as many other interests. And it does look like uh, Parker will uh, hold on this time. Parker also known for uh, various violent outbursts over his course of his uh, career, but that reputation uh, has not uh, sunk him yet. And, uh, uh, Alexis, uh, 32 years old, and uh, the former uh, uh, home health care aide and uh, Uber Uber driver, uh, who, after experiencing increasing exploitation at Uber, uh, became a labor, labor organizer and helped uh, organize the drivers' co-op, uh, which uh, hundreds of many hundreds of drivers are participating in. It's the largest cooperative uh, for uh, rideshare drivers in the country. Uh, 
Alexis is also active in the CSA and uh, you know, campaigned under very difficult circumstances. Uh, his wife has had a very serious uh, case of uh, sickle cell anemia and also raising their two daughters. And he continued to campaign through all of that and uh, mobilized a tremendous uh, grassroots effort out in uh, its corner of Brooklyn, but it does look like he will fall short tonight. But the other uh, Democratic Socialist running for state Senate, uh, Christian Gonzalez, appears headed to a handy victory over Elizabeth Crowley. And if that name rings a bell, she is the first cousin of former Congressman Joe Crowley, who was defeated four years ago in a Democratic primary by none other than AOC herself in that historic upset victory that really helped to usher in a wave of uh, progressive and socialist victories in the last four years. And that's it for now. I'll be uh, uh, handing this, this back to Matt.